Hello, everyone, and welcome to McGill Cares webcast series, Supporting Family and Informal Caregivers. I'm Claire Webster, a former caregiver, certified dementia care consultant, and founder of McGill University's Dementia Education Program. I work with a dynamic team of leading healthcare professionals to oversee the program, who include Dr. José Moret from the Division of Geriatric Medicine and Dr. Serge Gauthier, Professor Emeritus, formerly of the McGill University Research Center for Studies in Aging. These webcasts are made possible thanks to the generosity of donors. Today's topic is optimizing brain health throughout life and after a diagnosis of dementia. My guest is Dr. Leslie Fellows. She is a professor in the Department of Neurology and Neurosurgery based at the Montreal Neurological Institute. She provides care to people living with a range of cognitive disorders, including Alzheimer's disease, as well as young onset and other less common forms of dementia. She is head of the Cognitive Neuroscience Unit at the MNI, a theme leader for the Healthy Brains for Healthy Lives initiative at McGill, and serves as Vice Dean Academic Affairs in the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences. Today, she's going to speak about brain health, what it takes to keep our brain healthy, even after a diagnosis of dementia. Welcome to McGill Cares, Dr. Fellows. Thanks for having me. So let's begin by, um, you know, I'd like you to define, you know, what it means, like what is a healthy brain? What is that definition? Um, the brain's a very interesting organ because it's, it's really complicated. Um, and people often think of it as kind of living off in its own, in its own little world, yeah, but, it's part of the body and uh, it's influenced by all kinds of factors, um, local factors within the brain and general systemic factors, circulating hormones, uh, states of stress um, and so on. And so if you sort of think about what it takes to keep the brain functioning well, there's, there's the intrinsic sort of properties of the brain and then it's, there's its environment in the body. And then there's this additional really interesting feature of the brain in that our brains are how we interact with each other. And so we have our larger environment of the people around us, our social world, our uh, interactions that, that are kind of directly engaging the brain. Uh, and so the, the brain's kind of in a really neat place where it, it's influenced at multiple levels. And in some ways, that's why it's easy for things to go wrong because there's so many factors. But in other ways, it means there's many things you can draw on, you can uh, rely on to, to sort of boost uh, or optimize the brain's function under whatever conditions uh, because there are so many factors um, that range from, from biological to social. So is it possible to have an annual brain checkup as we age? Because when we go for our annual physical, you know, we have you know, they check your hearing, they check your vision, you know, they may check mobility, but like, what, what about having an annual brain checkup? Well, I, I think probably uh, you are getting an annual brain checkup just by talking to your healthcare practitioner. I mean, that's the other thing about the brain. You don't have to look hard to find it just saying hello and you're interacting with the brain. So hopefully, and usually I think uh, uh, healthcare practitioners are thinking about the health of the person's brain. And I think there's sort of two big categories. One is, is there a, a illness, a disease state that might be affecting the person's brain that should be detected early so it could be diagnosed clearly, treated or otherwise addressed? And the other is this kind of concept of, of brain health optimization, which is, as I was mentioning, has all these factors. And so 
anyone interested in sort of preventative health in general will typically be looking at factors that could influence the brain's health in particular by asking about stress, by asking about sleep, by asking about exercise, um, and by checking things like blood pressure, all of which are directly uh, relevant to the health of the brain. So even if the doctor doesn't seem to be noticing your brain, for sure they are. Um, whether it's helpful to have a, a formal test of the brain's function, like a memory test or that sort of thing, depends a lot on the specifics, how old the person is, whether they have any symptoms, um, and so on. But, um, but the, the more general approach to health in general actually is very valuable to the brain in particular. Um, maybe, maybe doctors don't even realize that they're doing it, but they, they notice if their patients are not I don't seem as sharp uh, or are complaining about the fact that they're less sharp and should have the tools to, to get a sense of whether that's, as you suggest, you know, normal changes across the lifespan, those definitely happen, or, um, or more substantial things that might suggest a disease state. The, you know, the MOCA test or the mini mental test, as you mentioned, is not normally part of the annual physical checkup. And I guess there's always a bit, there still is a big bit of a stigma talking to somebody about their memory issues. I mean, do you find our, our most primary care physicians today trained to, you know, be able to, to perform the MOCA with their, with their patients? Um, I think so. Uh, certainly the ones we train at McGill uh, get that experience. Um, the, the, those tests, though, are not really screening tests for the general healthy public. Um, they're intended to assess mild or you know, early stages of specifically Alzheimer's disease. In fact, that's what they were designed for. And uh, so if people don't have uh, concerns that they're expressing that may not be appropriate to screen, you know, as opposed to, uh, let's say, high blood pressure, which is important to screen for, mm -hmm. the person's not going to be able to say anything about it to you. Um, so as a screening tool, probably not, but as a, a sort of first step assessment for people who have cognitive worries uh, or whose family or is reporting that there's some change. To me, it's the main thing is when those changes have a real impact on the day-to-day -day function, that's when you start to get into a, a terrain where you could be looking for disease states uh, because even the MOCA, which is a little harder than the mini mental, is still too easy to detect um, you, you know, cognitive variation in people who are basically healthy or managing okay in their regular life. So to me, the most important thing is to understand how people are doing. And if they're worrying about their memory, are those memory concerns actually affecting their function? Or are they just worrying about them? Uh, which is a bit of a different thing. So can you explain what happens to the brain as we age? Well, lots of things happen to the brain as we age. There's normal changes. I mean, there are gradually losses and changes in the, in the mass of the brain with with age that's considered to be just a healthy, normal change. Those changes are happening through the whole lifespan. You know, there's a growth and development of the brain, and then there's kind of a, a phase of plateauing and fine tuning. Uh, and then through middle age and onwards, there's some loss of brain substance that, that could be considered normal. It, it widely varies across people, and it may or may not relate to their brain function. Um, in a direct way. It's not like it's the number of neurons you have that determine you know, how smart you are. Um, it's more complicated than that. And in fact, refining and fine tuning the brain's substance may be an important aspect of, of the learning that we do through our life. And that may be partly why it's changing in middle life that you're becoming more and more expert at, at doing whatever you do. And the brain you know, can sort of fine tune itself to meet demands. 
that's different from the accrual that also happens with age of, of uh, what would be considered diseases. Um, so with age, many things are happening in the body. And uh, commonly, people are accruing uh, or may be accruing uh, changes in the blood supply to the brain. It's very sensitive to age and also other conditions that occur more commonly with older age, like high blood pressure, diabetes, um, for example, um, or with smoking. And those things can affect the health of the blood vessels, which in turn can lead to inadequate blood supply at the sort of very small level in the brain. And gradually you can end up with uh, erosion of brain function due to injury, due to inadequate blood flow. That's pretty a pretty common thing that happens with age. And that is worth thinking about because it's it may be preventable or, or at least stabilizable by treating vascular risk factors. Um, so when you say treating vascular risk factors, so could you explain that a bit? You mean those are you know high blood pressure, so meaning to, to have the right right medications, cholesterol, have the right medications. Uh, yeah, I mean it's not only medications. So um, vascular risk factors are um, that we are reversible. The, the most important vascular risk factor is age, and that's not reversible. Uh, but it's, it just means you need to pay more attention to it as as you get older, um, because uh, there it is. Uh, the uh, the reversible or treatable or modifiable risk factors include cigarette smoking, which is very bad for your vascular health and has direct negative impact on your thinking. Um, um, high blood pressure, which should be treated for all kinds of reasons, but including brain function. Um, um, as you mentioned, uh, abnormal lipid profiles, high cholesterol, um, can be uh, treated with medications or diet change or weight loss or all of the above. Um, and then um, if you have diabetes, then it needs to be managed. Uh, and if you don't, it should be monitored for uh, because those things have effects on vascular health that accrue over time. Uh, if, if you're lucky not to have any of those health conditions, then especially in midlife, we think that regular exercise, a healthy body weight, avoiding cigarette smoking can actually have pretty big impacts on long-term health. So those are things people can do as individuals. There's some there's some evidence that maybe diet may be helpful in the sense that Mediterranean diet or diets richer in um, oily fish uh, are somewhat associated with lower risks of dementia later in life. And there's not really strong evidence showing that if you change your diet, you will definitely do better. But there's pretty good evidence for your general health that uh, body weight in the healthy range is, is going to be good for, for reducing the risk of many of those conditions that in turn can affect the brain's health. And then the other thing that happens with age is that the risk of a neurodegenerative disease goes up for reasons that we don't really understand that with Alzheimer's disease, the most common and it's it and the other neurodegenerative dementias are generally speaking uh, more and more uh, likely to occur as people get older. That's a, you know, a separate category of conditions, but but the likelihood of them giving trouble is augmented when people have additional factors like vascular uh, risk factors, which, so there's like multiple hits that the brain may be taking. And some of them we can, we already can do something about from a prevention or treatment point of view. So it's important to realize that and not just think that Alzheimer's disease is like uh, something you can do about it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you know, in it, so in addition to dementia, which we'll go into a bit more uh, shortly, what are some of the most common injuries that you see that can cause injury to the brain? 
Well, the, uh, the most one, common one and the one I'm kind of uh, interested in making sure people know about is vascular uh, cognitive impairment or vascular um, impacts on the brain, as I was mentioning. The brain it requires a lot of blood flow. It's a very energetically demanding organ. It takes, it's only, I don't know, a few percent of the body weight, but it takes 20% of the blood flow. So it really relies, it really needs a healthy blood supply. And um, increasingly we're understanding that especially small blood vessel um, changes that occur with age and high blood pressure and diabetes um, have have a direct negative effect on the brain. They're kind of starving the brain cells of, uh, of fuel and oxygen and um, gradually causing them to be injured and die off. Uh, so uh, that's a place we could really act. That's something we, we've increasingly become aware of the importance of that. Now, of course, you can have a more major stroke, like a big blood clot in a big blood vessel. And of course, that, that part of the brain is then permanently damaged because of a major loss of local blood supply. And that cuts away at the person's reserve and may, may leave them with outright um, uh, deficits, problems. But, uh, but even if it doesn't, it's, it's nonetheless having an impact on, um, on how much the brain is available to, to continue to support function. So let's talk about the correlation between uh, concussions, though, and brain health, right? Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the years about concussions and how many concussions could have an impact on a person's brain health. What is your opinion on that? Yeah, well, obviously, a uh, major head trauma is not good for the brain. <laughs> you know, um, I think it's, it's a little harder to know at what threshold we should really be worrying you know, minor bumps, how many, um, uh, over my short career, I've seen the pendulum kind of swing on this from eh, it's nothing to, oh my God, you know, don't shake your head. <laughs> mm -hmm. So obviously the, the reality probably falls somewhere in between. And um, I think there has to be a bit of a balance about it. I think we've gotten very, um, I think it's important to be aware that we need to protect our brains and we, for sure people should wear helmets and, you know, we should think about um, major contact sports, boxing, uh, you know, contact kinds of football. Obviously these things are, are going to put people at higher risk for recurrent. And I think that's where people are worried is the recurrent trauma. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, um, I would hate for people to think that they have to sort of sit at home and not move in order to keep their brains because you know, from, from being jostled, the, the brain's yeah. built to sit there. It's cushioned in the skull. It's, it's not that sensitive. Um, and the exercise of moving around and playing mm -hmm. sports that are maybe not sports where you bash your head into someone else's head, but you know, other sports, the benefits may be over the long run greater from the sport than from the risk of the bumps to the head. So the extremes of, of professional boxing or professional football players I think we could agree that that's got clearly a negative potential uh, for brain health, but recreational sports and, uh, you know, everyday bumps that are, you know, they can just happen. You, know, you can only do so much to protect yourself from falling down or whatever. Uh, I think people should try not to over, over stress about those. Um, you know, it can definitely lead to symptoms of concussion, but to then have to worry that that's going to lead to dementia, the, the link there is it's a very long story, very hard to tease it out scientifically. And I, 
I don't think people should be lying awake at night after a concussion worrying specifically about dementia unless they're unless they're maybe professional football players and they're doing that every weekend. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about the brains of people living with dementia. If you could explain a bit what is going on inside the brain, like what are some of the early symptoms and is there anything that people, I mean, you talk a lot about managing, you know, vascular risks, but is there anything else that people can do to maybe like slow or even reverse cognitive decline? Right. So I guess it's important to keep separate the cognitive changes that are occurring in more or less normal aging uh, from cognitive decline due to a major pathology like a, like dementia, like an Alzheimer's disease or another dementia. There are others, as you know, frontotemporal dementia, dementias related to Parkinson's and, and others. Um, so those we, we think are, you know, pathological health conditions that are within the brain, the brain cells are not managing the proteins properly. The proteins are clogging up the brain cells and the cells are dying off gradually. For reasons, you know, the underlying cause is still a mystery, but the mechanisms are increasingly clear. Um, So that's sort of encouraging that we understand more and more about the process, although the interventions to stop that from a medical point of view remain uh, elusive, uh, unfortunately. But, so brain cells are gradually dying off if you have a neurodegenerative dementia, but people don't, don't have symptoms for a long time. And that's interesting, right? So we, we know that process is occurring for several years, maybe many years um, gradually, but the brain has a lot of built-in resilience and people can continue to maintain their function, be unaware that there's an issue or maybe be aware that they're needing to make adjustments, but making adjustments successfully and continuing to function for a long time. And why is that? That's that's interesting. How does that work? Because we could harness that, right? In theory, we can harness that to keep people going for longer uh, with what they've got available to work with, even if we can't stop the pathological process underlying. Um, maybe someday we'll be able to stop the pathological process, but but until then, uh, what can we do to to help people make the best of, of wherever they're at in a, with an illness like that? Uh, that's, I guess, how I how I look at it. Um, depending on the on where the um, degeneration is occurring first, that that's what determines what symptoms people notice. Um, in Alzheimer's disease, there's certain parts of the brain that are more susceptible that tend to be affected first. And those are the regions that are important in, in memory of, of the kind that it takes to remember a conversation you just had or um, what happened yesterday and things like that. And also to be kind of aware of where you are in time, keeping track. Uh, so that's why people notice those kinds of memory problems early in most forms of Alzheimer's. Um, but other conditions may show up more in a kind of difficulty getting organized and managing complicated tasks or multiple tasks. Um, in fact, that's a very common pattern because it's the hardest thing the brain does, uh, so-called executive function, really to kind of keep track of a lot of things, hold, hold uh, information in mind, protect against distractions, stay on task despite lots of things going on around you. And people who are uh, have really any brain dysfunction tend to have trouble in that zone. Obviously, degenerative problem, that dysfunction tends to be worse and progress. But even if you just had a bad night's sleep, you can have some trouble with that kind of function. Um, so the patterns vary and the causes are also varying, uh, which makes it maybe harder for the patient to know what's going on. Uh, 
And certainly I wouldn't want people to jump to conclusions. There's often this direct connection. It's like, oh, I forgot something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, my memory's failing. I must have Alzheimer's yeah. disease. I was like, well, you might've forgotten something for a lot of reasons, some of which are memory and some of them are other, like you're distracted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't learn it well to start with. Um, and because you fail at that doesn't at all imply anything about um, whether you have Alzheimer's disease is the cause. There are dozens and dozens of factors that keep your brain working well and throwing any of them off in a, can, at least in a mild way, impair, impair these capacities. So, don't, so there don't is normal them. aging. There is normal, there is normal aging, right? I mean, like you just said, I have people calling me and saying, oh my goodness, you know, I keep losing my keys or I was at a dinner party and I recognize a person, but I couldn't remember their name. And, and so, I mean, there are, there is like just normal aging, right? Well, there's, I mean, there's people who argue about what's normal aging and whether we should expect to be sort of perfect, perfected uh, at some point in some random age, I don't know what, 25, 40, I'm not sure. Uh, And then, and then just stay like that. And of course there are some people who maintain function a long, long time. And one of the things that's interesting about cognitive performance with age is it's, is it's not so much that it's falling off, that it's worsening, but that it's getting more and more variable across people. So some people stay quite steady if you follow their cognition over time through through age, and others start to have trouble. And then the question is, are those people who are having trouble in early stages of a disease, or there's just variation in, in normal aging, and there are people who are having more trouble, just like there's variation in how, how wrinkled people get uh, at a given age, and we don't necessarily understand why and what's changing many things changing so the main thing though is that i guess there's two main things about worrying about your memory one is um is it actually affecting your real life function because it's one thing to forget someone's name um you know by the time you get to be 60 or 70 you've learned a lot of names (laughs) i mean that's the other thing you know you've been exposed to thousands of people uh and it's actually kind of impressive that you remember the names you do remember um Mm -hmm. um, so you're having trouble finding words or finding names that's really really common and basically normal unless it gets sort of past the point where it's normal uh so occasional lapses mm, normal but um substantial recurrent lapses that are, you know, getting in the way, you forget your boss's name several times, you know, this, these things are going to affect your, your function. And that's where we start to worry more that there might be an underlying health condition. Uh, yeah, so normal, the other thing that's important to realize, at least for Alzheimer's disease, is that the same systems that manage memory are also involved in monitoring how you're performing so as we're going about our day-to-day lives, do, how do we notice that we're forgetting things or keeping track of things? Uh, well, the brain's having to do that. And there's specific systems that monitor our, our own performance and let us know if we're needing to make adjustments. Um, those systems are affected early in Alzheimer's disease. And therefore, people with uh, early Alzheimer's are often unaware. They're not really noticing that they're having problems. Um, because the brain monitoring system is not working as well as it should. And so it's actually the most common picture in the clinic. It's not, the patient is not complaining. If I usually start by asking the person um, what the problem is, and they usually say, I don't really have a problem. My wife or her husband or whatever has dragged me in here. Uh, and then they sit sort of puzzled while the other person ex- describes recurrent, substantial, function-limiting uh, troubles with memory that have gotten worse 
over time and then then I'm worried. When the person by themselves is telling me all about that time when they forgot that thing, mm -hmm. that actually requires a lot of memory <laughs> and it's and a lot of monitoring. And the fact that the person can tell me all about it, how embarrassing it was, there they were, and there's this guy they've known for years and I couldn't remember his name. I'm like, okay, well, you're showing me a very good brain function. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not so worried that this is um, pathological. Not to say that people with Alzheimer's aren't completely unaware, mm. they are, but but it varies a lot and they're typically less aware than the people around them of their lapses. That's probably one of the most challenging first um, phases for families who have a loved one who's showing signs of Alzheimer's is that the person with all the symptoms doesn't believe that there's anything wrong with them and they are refusing to go and see the doctor. And, you know, and it's so important as we know to have an assessment um, and, but it's, it's a real challenge getting them there. So do you have any advice that you offer for family members? And because it's, it's, it's very difficult at times to get a family member into your, into your office. Yeah. Yeah. For lots of reasons, including, especially that one, that they're, they're literally not really aware that there's a problem. Um, but also to the extent that they are aware, they, they may worry about it and not, mm -hmm. not like the idea of having their memory tested. Um, mm -hmm. I agree. It's one of the more troublesome features of this condition or difficult for families, not only at the first diagnosis, but throughout the condition. Um, um, so I think the main thing is people often use the word denial. He's in denial. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of a psychiatric or psychological explanation of denial that I think is in the popular culture that you know, somehow you're blocking, you know, if you just saw the psychiatrist and opened up your emotions, you then you'd become aware. People are denying in that psychological sense, generally, uh, that they have memory trouble. The, the brain's not really able to grasp what's going on. That's, that's part of the problem. That's part of the conditions. It's the effect of the condition. So mm -hmm. I think that to the, I try to communicate that to families because I feel like it's an important distinction that not that the person is resisting this information. Um, they're, they're not able to track it. Uh, but mm -hmm. We take that ability to track how we're doing for granted. We don't really think about the fact that we do that. Um, but when it breaks down, it's really a problem. And then people lose insight and it's difficult. Then you really do have to step in and, and kind of help the person mm -hmm. um, address that disability that they don't know they have. Um, and I, all you can do, I think, is just keep expressing the fact that you're caring about them, worrying about them. And even if it's just for the caregivers, uh, peace of mind, could we go together and see how this, how this is looking to the doctor? I, I think, um, rather than arguing, I suppose, or trying to convince them that you think something's wrong, um, kind of pushing against the brain that's not able to grasp that information is uphill work. So, yeah, I, think, I usually I, think I usually yeah. recommend to families that they try to tell their loved one, look, it's time that we go for like your annual physical checkup. You know, we're just going for, a, you know, a general checkup and it will include, you know, may include a memory test. But I think it's hard. It's all how they communicate, because if they say to their loved one, OK, we're going to the doctor because you're not remembering anything and you're you know, I'm really worried about you. And, you know, it's, I think it's all how it's presented. Right. Um, how it's communicated to them. Yeah, and I guess it's also one of the problems with this late life changes like this is that, you know, usually the spouse or child has known 
this person for their whole lives or many decades. And so they're not used to having to interact with them in this way where they mm-hmm. have to take on or take away some of their autonomy. Uh, so just to say, look, I know you don't really want to go, but I think we have to um, just to understand what's going on. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know who doesn't come to my office. Of course, I only see the people who come. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I, I do know that this is a, I, I like to see patients together with their family member. I know some yeah. memory clinics, you know, sort of split people up and talk first to one and then to the other and so on. And I just feel like whether or not everyone's understanding what's being said, that it's important that we're all in the room together and try to try to figure it out, try to communicate in common. Um both so I can know two perspectives on the situation, but also whether or not the person affected is really grasping what's happening. I just feel like it's important that they're there uh, to hear whatever's being said. Um, And also to try to help referee a little bit the discussion going on between the caregiver and the, and the person affected um, so that they don't get into arguments that I find sort of futile, (laughs) about whether there's really something wrong or not. It's like, we just have to move forward with the facts uh, practically. Yeah. So let's let's um, now talk a little bit about brain fog. Okay, um, the concept of brain fog and or you know how you know the environment or even hormones. I remember you know after I gave birth to my children or now as going through menopause or you know there's also been people that have been recovering from COVID or saying like this whole brain fog. Like there's these moments you just can't remember. Could you could you explain that concept? Yeah, so that that terminology, I guess, came was at least commonly used in cancer, chemo fog, um, and then or chemo brain, and then um, in HIV, it's called pause brain. Uh, and these days, people use that word brain fog. But it comes back to the point I was making earlier that um, when anything isn't, lots of factors influence brain function under normal conditions, um, and we know that, like sleep. Uh, and if you want to you know, an extreme test of that, then a newborn at home is going to do that for you. Never mind the hormones, just the lack of sleep is going to be uh, already quite a challenge for brain function. So any factor or combination of factors that influences the brain's health will, will tend to kind of non-specifically affect the, the functions that require the brain to work particularly well. Um, so high level functions where Lots of different parts of the brain have to be talking to each other very, you know, precisely for things to go as they should. Um, those are unplanned, open-ended things, non-routine things, multitasking, um, and learning information under distracting conditions, which is basically our lives these days. So mm-hmm. phone's buzzing, the Zoom call is ringing, the people are talking in the other room. You're thinking of half a dozen other, you know, worries that you've got. And in all of that, you're supposed to remember this person's name <laughs> yeah. uh, and you, you don't learn it well because you're not, the brain is like doing too many other things and not fully mm-hmm. focused. And then next time you meet them, they're like, ah, I look familiar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't remember this guy, yeah. um, but it's not because your memory is failing. It's because the, the most complex attentional executive functions of the brain are not working when you're first exposed to that. And that's what people experience as brain fog. It's just kind of uh, slightly less than perfectly sharp, or maybe a lot less uh, ability to carry on 
complex things. I mean, the other thing that's complex is interacting, like social interactions, because they're unpredictable things. So Mm -hmm. being able to follow conversations, especially in noisy environments, uh, like Mm -hmm. uh, if anyone remembers cocktail parties, remember cocktail parties? Uh, (laughs) um, Those kinds of situations where you have to kind of filter and focus are um, hard work for the brain. So when anything is wrong with the brain, it tends to show in those in those kinds of capacities, people feel just they're sort of fighting through a fog or not able to concentrate. Um, it doesn't imply a cause. There's usually many factors. Uh, and it, I think people didn't used to talk about it so much. <laughs> now we talk about the brain all the time. So, but, but this is com- a common experience. So that you don't have to be old. Um, but if you have additional reasons to not be uh, like, that are weighing on your brain function, like uh, like you're older, or you have maybe health conditions that have had a negative impact on the brain, or lots of stress, as many caregivers face. Well, if you have additional reasons to start with, yeah. and then these yeah. daily factors that would affect anyone's thinking a little bit may be exaggerated. So I think people who are older may notice them more if they're put under extra pressure, stress, um, or sleep, mental health changes, uh, worries. Um, um, isolation, loneliness, or physical health issues, pain, you know, these things are, uh, these things affect the, the brain's function too. And, um, people who are older may have less reserve to respond to these and therefore may note more trouble, more functional challenges mm-hmm. with, with what they might've been able to handle when they were 30, uh, because the brain's just got a little less resilience. So, mm-hmm. so they notice more, uh, but I also think we're asking more of our brains in a way we expect to be able to do things in a highly distracted state. That's not actually how the brain works very well. So, you know, a simple solution to some of this can be to, to uh, simplify. Like if you have to do something hard, uh, just do that. (laughs) Don't try to do that. while also monitoring your, uh, you know, Instagram feed. It's not, it's not a good combination. Uh, The brain works well when it's doing one thing at a time. So my leading to my last question then is like, what are some best practices that we can incorporate into our daily lives to ensure that our brains stay healthy? Um, yeah, well, um, I guess to remember that the brain is resilient and we don't have to coddle it, uh, but, but you can't help it out. So you can help it out from a health perspective, as we already mentioned, by, by preventing or treating these conditions that, that in the long run are going to be uh, hard on the brain like hypertension and diabetes, for example, please quit smoking. Mm-hmm. Smoking is very bad for the brain in the long run. Um, so those things, um, and then, and then you can think about, um, the day-to-day factors and in fact, monitor in your own life, the day-to-day factors that might be particularly relevant to you. So maybe it is stress or maybe it is poor sleep, or maybe it is a little bit too much alcohol um maybe it is um you know a social isolation or some sort of um social factors that that make you less on the ball um and if you can notice those you can maybe think about making changes to them um regular exercise is is probably um useful for all of those health related issues. And there's some evidence that suggests it may be directly beneficial to the brain, like more immediately. Uh, so 
that that can just be walking. It doesn't have to be something uh, heroic. Uh, um, and then I, uh, people are often asking me about crossword puzzles and Sudoku and, you know, cognitive training on the internet. Uh, lots of people selling those kinds of offerings. Uh, for sure, using your brain and especially using your brain doing meaningful things that are in some sense rewarding to you uh, is a good way to maintain brain plasticity. Um, if you love crossword puzzles, that could be great. Uh, like if you find it rewarding to do them, okay, uh, do them. But I wouldn't do them if you don't like crossword puzzles. And um, there's no need to train your brain in that narrow sense. You should use your brain to do things that matter to you and that, are, um, that challenge you that are outside of your routine a little bit. And that you enjoy when you when you do them well or when you come close to doing them well. Um, and for many people, that may be social activities, um, which I know is a funny thing to recommend in a pandemic. But mm -hmm. uh, social activities, just into a conversation is already a pretty challenging thing for the brain. So um, making sure that people are are connecting, uh, especially in groups or, or in conversation or in community oriented activities. I think those are underrated, very important. Um, brain health promoting uh, factors. And, you know, if you must, if you want to spend time keeping your brain's synapses firing, why wouldn't you spend that time doing something that's personally meaningful? Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, but I guess that's where I suggest people put their emphasis to think about if they feel they need to make a change for their brain health, then I would suggest looking in that direction. Where can you do things that are going to matter to you in your community where you're going to get positive feedback and feel good about things that's that's good for the brain and it's probably just good <laughs> that's really really great advice well thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today and on this very informative webcast about you know the brain and that understanding brain health thank you very much for being with us today no it's my pleasure thanks for putting this series together so this webcast is an initiative of the McGill Dementia Education Program, which is funded by private donations. If you would like to make a contribution to our program or for more information, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash dementia. If you would like to join our mailing list to be notified about upcoming episodes of McGill Cares, as well as other important programs and resources from us, you can sign up at the McGill Cares webcast tab or visit us or email us at dementia at mcgill.ca. Thank you for watching.